Ugh. My brain is not there today. You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Welcome to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate real estate broker with Arla at Properties. And I am Sarah Frank, licensed in DC and Maryland, also on the Edition Invest team with Russell. And uh, what do you want to talk about this week? I don't know. There's, I feel like we've taken a long break for the summer. It's been crazy, crazy. Let's talk a little bit about the market. And then I think you wanted to talk about the MLS updates, right? Yeah. So market is crazy. Rising interest rates is are not cooling the market. I've written um, three offers this week. And I think in each situation, one of them, we had 13 offers. One that was six, and the one I got one last night. Thirteen, good lord! Yeah, which house? Which one was that? Thirteen was up in Frederick, and like I never see that many offers on a property in Frederick. What was Um, the price point? Um, it's like three twenty or something like that. See, it's the three hundred to four hundred price range is nuts. Yeah. So as as interest rates go up, everyone is getting pushed down in price point, right? So everyone that was shopping in the four hundreds and the five hundreds are now going down to the three hundreds and the four hundreds, making those especially hot price points. Yeah. So the people who are still shopping this time of year, especially, I feel like everyone's agent has given them the same advice if they're in that price range, that. Now's a good time to be making offers because everyone else is on vacation. Yeah. I've said that I've said that twice to people in the past week, like, well, let's let's strike while people are out of town. But then I think everyone got that advice, so no one has left town. Or if they are out of town, they're still making offers. Yeah. I mean, when I when they told me there was 13 offers on a house in Frederick, I was like, I, I think the most I've ever seen in, on one of the I've seen in Frederick is six or seven. Thirteen's um, a lot for anywhere. Yeah. Were they all like competitive, or were some of them kind of throwaways? I mean, I assume they're all they're all competitive, but yeah. there's always one or two throwaways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, multiple offers everywhere. I got one under contract last night. There was four or five offers on that, and um, we were only able to get that because we were all cash, no contingencies. Um, That's a single family. That was a single family home in Silver Spring, and uh, we we're actually not. Not the high offer on that. We had we were the third highest offer, but all cash no contingencies is why we got it. Wow. So yeah, cash is still king, obviously. I feel like the strongest price range obviously is at three hundred, four hundred, because that's what people can still afford to buy something, anything at all. Yeah, I mean it depends where it is. So like Baltimore, that's an extremely competitive uh price point. Frederick it is, but Montgomery County you know, it's going to be the 500s, I think, that are the most competitive. And mm-hmm. D.C., the six and 700s is, is going to be the most competitive. Right, because that's what it costs to get into, like, an actual house. Into in, the bare minimum sort of, yeah. Not a condo. House. In Montgomery County, at least. Not no. a condo, but, like, an actual row home or a, a townhouse, I guess is what you would call it, yeah. out here in the burbs. And uh, <clears throat> I just sold one over in McLean, and we got – and that was, like, in the – uh, we're in like the one five one six range, and I got three offers on that. So I thought I was going to get more offers than three. Um, 
but I mean, I was happy to get three. Was and the one you got you went with was cash. That one was cash, and we they did negotiate in and um, what's it called a home inspection contingency, but we negotiated the contingency timeline on it down to one day. Dang. Yeah. And they turned it around. Yep. So they had, uh, they scheduled the home inspection before they actually got the ratified contract back. And the reason I w- was insisted on getting it, like, real, they initially asked for three days, which was not that bad. But there was two more properties coming on the market in that neighborhood in two days. So I didn't want them to have the ability to opt out after seeing those other properties. So right. that's why I negotiated down to one, th- one day so they'd have to stick in there and not wait for those other properties to come on the market. Was it negotiable inspection or just pass or fail? Just pass or fail. Yeah. Right to cancel only. Um, and there was nothing really wrong with that house. So Yeah, yeah. Um, although um, <laughs> like a week week or two before uh, I listed it, the HVAC went out and I had to get that repaired like last minute. That was, but it wasn't as bad as you were thinking it was going yeah, to be. Yeah, it was like a $250 fix. It was no big deal. Right. I was thinking because it's a giant house. I was like, it's going to be 10 grand out of pocket yeah. or something nuts. Well, uh, I, actually, that brings me to the point. So you know that I had three HVACs to go out last week. Um, and now I just had a fourth HVAC problem just last night pop up at my, this one was at my primary residence. So, uh, it's that time of the year where HVACs are going out. They're, they're stressed out. Yeah. They're working as hard as they can. It's nuts. I mean, my house is a row house. The basement is legitimately 10 degrees cooler than the upstairs because I don't have a split system. So I feel so bad for these like converted, uh, multifamilies. <laughs> People have one thermostat and 3000 square feet. I can't imagine. Nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Real in uh so the HVAC in this very office went out um week or two back too. And um this is something I've never run into. So we're in a commercial office space here where we're recording and I called all my normal HVAC companies and none of them would come out to fix it because it's a commercial building. Um, what? Yeah. So I called like 10 different people and they all gave me the st- same spiel. So well, the I, building has to have someone they've worked with in the past that you could get the info from, right? Well, I called the property management company for the building and they're like, well, they're all individual. So we don't, you know, the owners take care of them. So we don't know who the, each owner's using. There's not a general one for the general common spaces though? I mean, they're heated. Uh, yeah, I mean, there must be, but I don't know. He, The guy was not very helpful. So I unfortunately had to call a company that I don't like very much. They're a huge, huge, huge company and they're usually like twice the price as everyone else. But they were the only one that would come fix the HVAC here. What was wrong with it? Some component uh, went out and he just had to replace it. And so they replaced one component. It was like $700, I think. Mm. Which I was prepared to replace the whole thing. So I wasn't, you know... 700 was okay by me. God, that's one of the worst. Your HVAC, the roof, those things are yeah, so on, tough. On one of, so on my other two HVACs that went out, one of them was like a $500 fix, but then the other one, um, and I was suspecting this, I had to replace the whole system. So that was like just over seven grand. That was on another. Uh, that was on a property I have in Rockville. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez. And the tenants run them so hard too. Yeah. Which is fine. It's what they're paying for, but uh. yeah. But that that HVAC was like it was like fifteen or sixteen years old. It was a Goodman, which is a low quality brand. So I I knew 
I knew that uh, it was likely going to have to be replaced. Got to buy nice, not thrice. Yeah, well, when I bought that, that was one of my first rental properties. So, like, I bought the cheapest uh, HVAC. That's okay. I When I replaced mine last year, I literally got one. There's not even a label on the, on it. I don't know where he found it. He could have found it on the side of the street and just installed <laughs> so it. So you don't even know what brand it is? I have no idea what brand it is. Oh. He gave me a packet. Like, the packet he gave me doesn't even really have, like, a name on it. Like, he could have made it out of junk. I don't care. It was cheaper than at that point in time. Of course, like, it was... Weeks after my warranty ended on the house, I had to do that. So I was getting quotes for twelve grand on just to yeah, replace that for a tiny house. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go with the, my guy, Ron. <laughs> I think he's licensed. I did look up. He is licensed. But it's so weird when you have someone do work on your own house. You don't, get, you don't care as much as like for a rental yeah. property because, you know, when the tenants get mad, they're going to go searching for that stuff, like licensing. And How much was it when you got it replaced? Five grand. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, but like I said, no idea what brand it is. Yeah. The condenser literally has no label on it. Yeah, I don't even know what kind, what brand they put in the Rockville House um, last week because I've never seen it. I just paid the bill. Um, yeah, another Goodman. Uh, prob- well, it's hard to get is. parts too. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's funny when when the guy replaced the part in the HVAC in this house. Uh, or rather in this office, he was like, oh, this is a really rare part. I don't know if I have it. I was like, but he, luckily he had it. So you didn't have to order the part. Um, cause who knows how long it would take if they had to order the part. Yeah. I'm curious to see what the HVAC guys coming to my primary residence today. So I'm kind of curious to see what the problem is there. You're, it's a newer build, right? Yeah. It's like, so I bought it six years ago, but it was, it was there for t- like two years before we bought it. Um, so it's like probably an eight-year-old HVAC. So you're the original owner? Yeah. Yeah. You changed the filter and everything. Oh, yeah, religiously. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, We get hopefully. our ducts cleaned, all that jazz. Um, yeah, but like the this AC is just running super hard and like vibrating the whole house. Yeah. Remember that, like, I had an eye infection for, like, five months this winter? Yeah. I got my air ducts cleaned. It went away. Oh. So he he was pulling all sorts of crap out of the air ducts, 150-year-old house. Yeah, I need to get the air ducts cleaned here, I think. It's satisfying. They can put this spray in there, too, that makes the whole house smell good. Hmm. Probably, like, ammonia. (laughs) Just giving yourself. But let's uh, let's pivot here. Let's talk about some of the MLS changes we're seeing, not just in our own MLS, but around the country. So... Um, for those who don't know that, right, the many, many, many brokerages and National Association of Realtors is facing multiple class action lawsuits about buyer agent commissions. Um, and so there was a lawsuit pending against, um, MLS PIN, which is the MLS out of the Boston area, um, of which I'm sometimes a member and sometimes not a member of that MLS. So they just settled a lawsuit and I had the article here in front of me, so I went, how much did they settle for? So this is a relatively uh, low settlement. So they got sued by some consumers saying they were forced to buy sellers who claim they were forced to pay buyer's agents when they didn't want to. So MLS Penn settled the lawsuit for $3 million, which is an incredibly small amount of money for, um, you know, a company of, of their size. Um, but some of the interesting things I found in it, so... Of the $3 million, the amount of money that went to the two 
uh, lead complainants in the case, they only got $2,500 each. So, okay, so what are they blaming MLS? Let's back up. What are they blaming them for? So w- what they're blaming them for is they're a seller and they're saying, we don't want to pay buyer's agents and we were forced to because the MLS system requires you to enter a uh, enter a certain amount that you're going to offer to a buyer's agent. So where do they think the buyers are coming from? What, so they're thinking that buyers need to be paying the, the buyer's agent. That's what they, that's what these particular sellers say, but right – Every single dollar in the transaction that is brought to that transaction comes from the the buyers. And the buyer's agent who is helping to put in the best offer and get the most money for the seller as well. But that money comes directly from those buyers. They put down the down payment. They borrow the money. So every dollar in the transaction comes from the buyers. But some sellers believe that it comes from them because it shows up on their side of the settlement statement. Um. But the interesting thing is, right, so the MLS pin, as well as most MLSs that require or had required the entry of a buyer's agent commission into it, allowed uh, a commission as little as $1 to be entered. Um, So we're not talking about like a drastic change here. So now MLS pin is requiring – or not requiring any entry so that you can put $0 in. So the change is going from $1 down to $0, which I don't think is a very big deal, but many people in the industry are freaking out about it. But uh, th- but back to, I thought it was interesting that the plaintiffs in the case only got $2,500 each, and the lawyers that represented them got oh, $900,000. That's rich. Yeah. Well, why why should they have to pay their lawyers? Shouldn't the court pay the lawyers? I mean, yeah, why they, why aren't they paying their own lawyers? Yeah. Um, but uh, that's who's really making out in these lawsuits is it's not consumers. Um, it's not agents, not MLS systems. They're, the only beneficiary to all of these lawsuits is uh, the lawyers. They're the ones who are making out. You know, when I first heard about the the optional buyer agent commission, I literally had a nightmare that night of how would you explain, it's hard enough getting buyers to sign. I mean, it's not hard, but explaining to them what a buyer agency agreement is and like having them sign on stuff like that. Then having to in your business go from not having discussed compensation with them to selling yourself even more and saying here, not only, you know, is the seller no longer paying for it, but you have to pay for it now. Yeah. Like that's to me is nightmare fuel, having to have a buyer pay for a service yeah, that they may or so, may not use. And if the industry does go that way, we're going to enter, it, there is going to be an incredible inequity in the marketplace, right? So we would face a situation where rich people um, can afford representation and middle-class people would not be able to afford representation. So, right, we could we could be in a world where only the rich have the benefits of having knowledge and expertise in their real estate transactions and, you know, the middle class or the lower classes wouldn't. And that would create a very inequitable society, right? We would have a, as the term we use in real estate, a spirit of impact against protected classes mm-hmm. um, be, because we would see buyer agent representation dry up um, essentially in certain counties and certain zip codes. Um, because of the inability to uh, pay out of pocket. So if something like that happened, I would imagine that we would see a change in Fannie Mae regulations. So right currently, in order to sell the loan, you cannot 
wrap technically buyer agent commissions into the loan. Even though that's essentially what's happening, it's just that that money is being deducted from one side of the transaction instead of the other. Um, so I think we would see a change in Fannie Mae regulations on that. Um, but we also run into this problem where with certain loan products, like the Veterans Administration loan, the VA loan, where it's illegal for a veteran to pay it any amount of commission out of pocket, right? And so if a veteran wanted to buy a property where no commission was being offered, um, now we're in this problem where we have conflicting laws where a bu- where buyer could be forced to buy- pay their agent, but it's illegal for a veteran using a VA loan to pay their agent. Um, mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of problems that arise from this. But the change, MLS PIN changed it from previously there was $1 of compensation was the minimum allowed to be. Now it's $0. And our own MLS system, Bright MLS, has followed suit um, with no legal action against them. They would just they saw the way that the industry is going and decided to nip this in the butt. So do we think it'll end up in a situation similar to, you know, when we're negotiating with a wholesaler on an off-market property where if someone is using a buyer's agent and, you know, you go in as the agent, you see the co- the commission is $5. Are you able to negotiate that directly with the seller's agent and the seller? Or Absolutely. And in fact, and that's always been the case, regardless of what the commission is in the MLS, negotiate uh, commissions are always negotiable between the parties. And Every now and then I go to negotiate a commission and people are like, you can't do that. And I'm like, I sure can. You can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything's um, but, negotiable. But I, I think it's interesting just in the last couple of days to make that point very clear, Bright MLS added this note under the compensation section compensation section on properties in the MLS. Um, they've added this to every listing. It says, and I quote, any offer of compensation is unilateral and for all Bright MLS subscribers. A buyer may seek additional broker compensation subject to negotiation. That's clearly written out now on every single listing. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be important going forward, right? If there's no con- compensation being offered, um, as a buyer's agent, you're going to have to go out in there and negotiate. And, and right, negotiation, right, they don't have to agree to it. Um, and so that that is going to lead to some... Uh, lot more conversations about this with your, you know, your, with your buyer clients. And that's to assume your buyer clients going into it are okay with paying for your commission. Yeah. We're going to see a whole lot of buyers who just decide to go with solo aren't using a buyer's agent. And then what happens then? It's similar to when people idolize off-market properties and think they can negotiate leases and stuff. They end up signing a, a bad contract. <laughs> like who's advocating for them? There is a role to the buyer's agent. So yeah, I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong in the conversation in, in in a transaction. So one of the things I always like to lean back on because it's it's very illustrative of a ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar problem. Um, most states have laws that state that if a private water and sewer utility charge is not disclosed, then uh, a seller may have to um, pay for it. That's the case in Maryland. So any properties built after, say, 1995 in Maryland have a private water and sewer utility charge attached to them, typically for 30 years. It's usually about $1,000 a year for a single-family home. And so if a seller doesn't disclose that, um, they have to pay that off once someone realizes it happened. So that could be a $30,000 charge. Um, I've been at settlement tables where fights have broken out about this particular law. 
Um, the law is black and white. It, you know, it's, it's not a negotiable thing. Um, and so it, that one little mistake, you know, and this mistake doesn't just happen to right unrepresented consumers it could be made by just an agent who's not very good can cost their client $30,000. Hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of little mistakes that can add up to huge sums of money um, for someone who just doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, don't they pay right now in Boston, like you were telling me, for like looking for a lease? They pay their agents. New yeah, York City so too. tenants um, in Boston as well as New York typically are paying um, their own tenant representation, their agent. Um, and it's interesting because in those two cities, uh, eight agents in general do more leases than they do here in the DC area. Um, but it, it's very expensive. Um, it's also very common in Boston to collect first month's rent, last month's rent and security deposit. So that that's three months rent right there. Plus a month for an agent, four months rent. So often it takes four months rent saved up to be able to get an apartment in Boston. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. New York too, I've heard. And I heard in New York, they like look at all your financial stuff, like your bank statements, everything, which is crazy. In DC, you just need like a pulse and a social security number and you can, well, you need to, you know, pass a background check. Yeah. And, and agents that represent, um, tenants or even landlords in in DC make on average a lot less than they do up in New York and uh, Boston. We often see right fifty yep. percent of a month's fifty uh, percent commission fifty uh, percent of one month's rent is the commission or twenty five percent or thirty five percent. Um, it's almost always a full month's rent up in New York and in Boston. So they're making more and the rents more up there as well. Yeah, so that's like a pretty solid chunk of change if you're doing a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've got a good friend up in Boston. He only does leases, and um, he makes a good living. Yeah, I mean, once you have your system down, it sounds terrible to me. But if the you know the rent's four grand or whatever, yeah, which is realistic. Yeah, I mean, do who knows how many of them he does? Probably uh, probably does a hundred leases. That's that's, yeah. that's a good amount of money. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's not just, all of his not all of his rentals are you know four grand a month, but I'm sure he has some four and five yeah, grand. It's a lot of showings, yeah. but anymore it's been a lot of showings for regular clients, regular buyers too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, getting them over the hump on the interest rates has been tough. I think everyone universally suffering with that. There's been these little breakthroughs though, like a couple weeks, people adjust and then they'll start making offers, but cash is still winning out in all these markets. So yeah, I mean it's it's hard to be a buyer right now because. Rates are high, right? They're at 7%. You're low down payment. You're paying over 7% and you're getting beat out by cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, a lot of the first-time home buyers, they want to escalate, right, higher and win. Um, but because rates are higher, their borrowing power is decreased. And so they're just hitting their maximum borrowing capacity at lower price points. Um, I've got a number of clients who, you know, who a few years ago qualified for nine hundred nine fifty million dollars, and like now their borrowing capacity is seven hundred thousand, mm-hmm. um, and so they're having to adjust because the prices keep going up; yeah. they're not coming down. Um, 
still multiple offers, but now they can't borrow as much. Right. Um, and the difference between 700 and 900 in DC is between a condo and a house. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a significant difference. Significant. It's not, it's an asset class difference. Yeah. <laughs> like that's substantial. And people, you know, it's not their forever home, but they're seeing like what happened to people who bought in 2021 who are never leaving their house and they're never right. refinancing. So they're like, well, it's not forever, but it could be five six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. So it needs to be something I'm comfortable in. I'd rather wait. And Well, that's save. the thing too, right? So the higher interest rates go, the less likely existing owners of properties are to move, right? Because they're mm-hmm. not going to sell their house with 2.5%, 3% interest rates, jump back into the market at a higher price point and have to borrow at, you know, 6.5%, 7.5%. So as rates go up, we get further press, downward pressure on inventory because more more and more owners are getting locked in the place and not moving. Mm-hmm. And um, so which pushes prices up. Prices are going to keep going up. They're projected to go up another crazy amount in the, into the fall and yeah. in the winter. There's just no houses. So people just got to get kind of get over it and just do it and hope on that refinance or and then we've got on top of all that we've got uh local governments passing ridiculous regulations which is putting further pressure on inventory prince george's county um just did away with all zoning to build townhouses so you can't build a townhouse development in prince george's county currently and right so if you have a lot of land, let's say it's an acre, and I, I don't know how many um, townhouses would fit on an acre. Let's just make up a number and say it's 12. But So you could uh, build 12 townhouses or three single families. So now instead of being able to build 12 units of housing, we're, we're only building three on that same lot of land, putting further downward pressure on inventory because now we, can, we can't build as much housing. Montgomery County's been sloppy recently. Yeah, she's I mean, been doing crazy things. Yeah, I mean Montgomery County, um, in the last six months, has raised recordation taxes significantly, uh, raised property taxes, raised impact taxes. Impact taxes are the taxes they assess on a new construction home. Um, so they're driving up the cost of housing, you know, precipitously here in Montgomery County, um, and it's just amazing that. You know, this is not just in the bubble because, like I said, Prince George's County um, is making bad policy choices and jurisdictions across the country are. Some jurisdictions, though, aren't. So Oregon, um, Oregon, I believe, did away with single-family zoning statewide. So whatever kind of property that the market wants to build in a location, they'll be able to build there. Um, But restrictive zoning here on the East Coast, um, along with just rising taxes and then uh, right, doing away with zoning that allows us to build more housing, um, driving up the cost of properties and, you know, further pressure on an inventory crisis. So we're facing a, you know, decade long battle before we probably get back to, if everything went right, normal inventory. Um, we've got less than a month of inventory in the metro area now. Um, you know, I used to be able to take a client out on a Saturday to see five, six properties at a time. Now I might be able to bring them out and see one property because mm-hmm. there's just nothing for sale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully in the fall. Yeah, I mean, we'll get, we'll get a little, one or two. We'll get a little bump, but right, that's going to go from like 
two houses in a neighborhood to maybe f- four houses um, yeah. so, while well, there's still 25 buyers for that neighborhood. Yeah. Well, it's what it is, I guess. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough market to be a buyer, um, tough market to be a buyer's agent. Um, and it's not getting any, not getting any easier. It's a motivational speech. Yeah. <laughs> we are in a good mood. <laughs> Things are fine. Things are just, these happen, these cycles, these young people, myself included, have never seen a downturn in our lives. So we're, we're a little confused, question mark, but hopefully these things come back, right? Right, Russell? <laughs> I mean, we've we've had declining inventory. Uh, so I think inventory peaked in 09, I believe. Um, and so for 14 years, we've been on a downward inventory trajectory. Um, it's just that in the last like two or three years, it's gotten to such a point that, um, you know, it's actually like at dangerous levels. Like there, you know, every one house that comes up for sale, there's 15 buyers for it. Um, yeah. And uh, right, the the Federal Reserve's right attempt at raising rates uh, to slow the growth of prices um, is just you know, create an inventory crisis. And what's funny is it, it should be no shock because the same thing happened in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, they they drastically raised interest rates, right, to try to stop how fast prices were accelerating, but it didn't stop prices from accelerating because when rates go up, inventory goes down. As inventory goes down, um, prices continue to rise. Yeah, so, competition's too stiff. So while... You know, rising interest rates may may calm down the price growth of tomatoes and oranges and energy. It d- does not actually have that effect on housing. Right. Yeah. And that's part of right house elasticity of demand. Right. So uh, elasticity of demand means uh, demand can change as prices go up or down, mm-hmm. but certain products don't have elasticity, elasticity. in their demand. Right, things like water. We pe- people need to consume the same amount of water, water regardless of how much it costs. Housing. People have to live in housing regardless of how much it costs. So there is no elasticity to the demand of certain products. Mm-hmm. So when rates go up and drives up the cost of those products, uh, demand doesn't get tempered because there is no el- elasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's going well. Well, we'll try to have someone on for the next podcast. Um, we should probably do a poll on Instagram, see what kind of people we should have on. Yeah. If you guys out there listening want to hear from a certain type of professional or somebody, you know, or just an individual, send send in the name or send in your suggestions. Uh, we love to hear them. If you have questions, email us at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Um, we're always happy to answer questions. Anyways, so next week, we'll catch you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.